Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 379. As part of our Smithsonian Associates author interview series, we are joined today by author Dr. Eva Pell, former Undersecretary for Science at the Smithsonian. Dr. Eva Pell will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program, which is entitled Breakfast at the National Zoo, Look Who's New, September 14th, 2019. The National Zoo's population is always growing. Rabbit, the Pacific Harbor Seal has arrived. The newly on-viewed North American River Otter pups are thriving. And Nikita, the Amur Tiger, is enjoying life among her friends. This special program from the National Zoo and Smithsonian Associates will allow young guests and their families to enjoy a live performance, visit three children's activity corners, and meet Lion and Tiger Hill, and each focused on games and projects that reflect the habitats of the newest arrivals at the zoo. In a special feature this year, Dr. Eva Pell, former Undersecretary for Science at the Smithsonian, will read from the most recent in her series of middle school adventure novels focusing on endangered species, Rescue and the Baby Orangutan. I've asked Dr. Pell to read just a couple paragraphs from this book because it's so wonderful. Go ahead, Dr. Pell. So uh, I'm reading from one of Stowe's logs. We are here to rescue a young orangutan that got separated from its mother. This is a bad thing since these little guys are dependent upon their mothers until they're six or seven years old. They nurse until they're six. Sounds a little gross to me. Orangutan means person of the forest because that's where they live. They're only found in two places, Sumatra and Borneo, both islands in Indonesia. Same locations where most of the palm wild plantations are. Their ape cousins, the gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos all live in Africa. Of course, Wheaton and I are a different kind of cousin, but glad we live on the same continent. Orangutans usually live alone, not like gorillas that live in troops. Pairs of female orangutans and their babies meet up for what scientists call feeding aggregations, their version of a Friday night pizza party. You can tell males from females if you know a few things about them, aside from the obvious. Males develop cheek pads they use to throw sounds of their long calls. They're twice as big as females, which makes sense, but males tend to have long hair. Go figure. That's wonderful. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to talk to you. I'm excited about this upcoming Smithsonian Associates program at the zoo, and it's very unique. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Okay, well, the program is run by Smithsonian Associates, as you know, and uh, that's an organization that uh, creates all kinds of opportunities for people in the Washington, D.C. area to benefit from the Smithsonian. So this special event at the zoo... Uh, or my involvement with it, relates to the book, uh, the first book that I'm publishing in a series that I call Rescue. And it's about rescuing endangered species. When the zoo found out what I was working on, they said, this is right in our mission. And uh, they invited me to come and do some readings from the book and a signing and a somewhat of an educational program. So I'm really looking forward to meeting the kids and their families on Saturday and share with them a little bit about, uh, about what I'm doing. Uh, 
the focus of my presentation is going to be all about species extinction because that's a really important role of zoos to educate people about extinctions and about endangerment of species. Uh, zoos today are not simply places to exhibit animals. It's really to teach people about the perils of the world that we live in. And so I'm going to do a presentation for about 20 minutes. I'm going to do it three times, 8.30, 9.30, and 10.30. And um, we have a slide presentation that's going to be kind of going in a loop behind me. And we're going to start with kind of a virtual walk into the zoo. You come down from Connecticut Avenue. You walk down Olmstead Way, if you're familiar with the central core of the zoo. And you come to a column. And I'm going to talk about that column. And that column has a plaque, has seven plaques. The first one's extinction. The second one is extinct in the wild, critically endangered, endangered, uh, near threatened, vulnerable, and least concern. So we're going to have a little fun with that. I'm going to ask the, the group, uh, have you ever seen an extinct animal? Well, I'm, I, I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know if they're going to say, well, if they're extinct, we're not going to see them. Or if they'll say, well, yeah, but not at the zoo. Maybe they'll say, we've seen dinosaurs. We've seen them in natural history. So it'll be fun to see what, I think if it's kids, they're going to be uh, more open in the way that they think about this. So it's going to be kind of fun. And then I will tell them that there's a, uh, in that, cycle of animal photos that they'll be seeing. There'll be lots of animals that are at the zoo and they fit into all these different categories. And there is one in there that's extinct and we'll see if they pick it up. It's the carrier pigeon that, as a, kind of a spoiler. <laughs> and then I'll say, and then there's one that is of least concern. See if you can figure out what that is. And uh, later on, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but of course, that'll be the bald eagle, which once upon a time was critically endangered, and now it's not so much anymore, which is really great. Uh, and then when we get finished with that, then we'll start talking a little bit about the series that I'm writing and about the book. I'll ask them if they know what category orangutans fall into, it's critically endangered. And I'll introduce them to the characters and a little bit about the story and the concept of the series. Then I'll do a couple of readings and uh, then we'll do some book signings. It's going to be a great day. I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for the kids to learn, for the adults to learn right along with you. And I think this idea of education is so timely and Smithsonian's commitment to to conservation and education and research is well known. It's longstanding. From my research of you, it's certainly the same. You feel the same way. So talk a little bit about this idea of conservation and why it's so important today and why these particular animals are are your focus. Absolutely. So you're, you're exactly right. I spent my life working in this arena one way or another. For the first 30 years, I did research on air pollution effects on vegetation and uh, I was a professor as well as a scientist, as well as a bench scientist. And it was always about, guys, we've got to understand what's happening here. We have to really drill into the facts. And then we have to use our intellect and our creativity to find solutions in order to live in a, in a world of great complexity. Then I was a senior vice president for research and dean of the graduate school, and I started to see so much content, so many technological possibilities. And it was fascinating to see how people were tackling problems of this sort and of other sorts 
in the most um, imaginative way. And then I came to the Smithsonian as Undersecretary for Science, and it was the icing on the cake for me because I came back to my core in conservation. I came to start to work with folks at the zoo, and um, and and the Smithsonian is absolutely all about education. It's about education from the toddler to the senior, and you have to find ways to engage people and create in, in a creative way. Now, to focus the conversation on the question you've just asked me, um, it probably is good to roll back the clock to May of this year when the United Nations issued a report indicating that as many as one million species could go extinct in the next few decades. I can't even get my head around what that means. Um, but if it if that were to happen, we don't know how many species are on Earth, though. 10 million is one number, and that would mean 10% of all species. That number is probably a little low. There's so much, so many species we don't even know exist. They could go away without our ever knowing it. But we do understand that we live in a web. We don't live independently. And if you start to strip away a million species, we will have a crisis in this on this planet. So... When you start to think about that, you say, all right, so whose problem is it? Well, it's not going to be my problem three decades from now, but it's going to be our children's, our grandchildren's, and their children. So we have to make sure that they understand the world they're inheriting. And then the question is, what do they do about it? Do we say to them, oh, the sky is falling, the tip, the scale is tipped, it's too late, we're beyond the tipping point, go curl, curl, curl yourself up in a ball and stick yourself in the corner? Or do we say, let's look at this problem, let's understand why it's happening, and then let's see if we can think of some imaginative solutions Will we solve every problem? Absolutely not. Will we prevent every extinction? Absolutely not. But can we prevent some of them? I don't think there's any question. Of course we can. That gets back to where I was um, about five minutes ago with the bald eagle. In, in the 1960s, the bald eagle was going down. Uh, it was on its way to extinction. And then people started studying it and they figured out that a class of pesticides that DDT fell into, the organochlorines, and DDT in particular, were causing thinning of eggshells and impacting reproduction. And so uh, based on that research, people started looking for alternatives. Um, uh, people in government decided that this was not, not a desirable outcome, and they, they um, eliminated the use of DDT. And, um, and, the, and the bald eagle is back. The bald eagle is no longer of much concern. You can see bald eagles pretty much anywhere you go. So we are capable, we are capable um, of making change if we choose to. And I believe that through um, educating children, and that can be in a fun way, and that's what I'm trying to do. We can empower them and create in them a sense of, well, when I grow up, I'm going to study X or I'm going to study Y because I want to do something about this. So, um, yes, I think uh, education is the key is the key to um, keeping our keeping our Earth in some sort of balance. Mm -hmm. I really like what you're doing about this too. The books are unique. Your perspective is unique. In other words, the books are geared more towards children as opposed to a more rigorous research 
paper that that you might expect from from someone like you with your your background and academic standing. So, what led you to write a book, kind of from this perspective? And tell us a little bit more about the series. Sure. Well, how I came to the book is sort of amusing. I, if you had asked me when I was still at the Smithsonian, if when I uh, when I left the Smithsonian I would become a writer for kids, I would. I would have laughed and said, "What are you crazy?" <laughs> but I do. I do have some grandchildren myself, and um, we were playing some games that we made up. And before I knew it, I was making. I thought I work at the Smithsonian. I should make this fun. And so I started creating a game where we traveled the world rescuing endangered species. And the kids had so much fun with it that uh, when I left the Smithsonian, my daughter told me to stop playing games and start writing my stories down. And that was, that was kind of the beginning of it. And what I wanted to do was create a wonderful adventure so that kids would want to read it because, you know, kids won't read something didactic. Uh, it has to engage them. And I also believe reading in and of itself is a very wonderful and marvelous Things. So I wanted something that was great and exciting and fun to read. And at the same time, I wanted to provide enough information that a teacher could use it in a class or a parent could use it for children that aren't ready to read the books themselves to have conversations about all of this. And I think the one thing that I'd, I've done with this book that may be a little different from some others is I've created a character that uses uh, material science and engineering to try and solve problems. And so I've got a completely fictional story and a lot of sci-fi, but it's based on real facts. So it's a series. It's called Rescue, R-E-S-Q. And the first uh, book is Rescue and the Baby Orangutan. And uh, there are three main characters. There's um, a woman named Ariella Gordon. She's a fictitious character, but she's a famous wildlife photographer. And she decides to start a foundation to rescue endangered species, but she needs some help. So she has a 12-year-old granddaughter who lives in Vermont, and she lives a very wild life. And uh, she's a real naturalist. She's a very daring, gutsy girl. She's a competitive skier. And so she's a natural to join um, Ariella. And her name is Stowe. And then there's a little boy, and his name is Wheaton. And he's lived an urban life. He lives in New Jersey. He's very intellectually precocious. Stowe calls him a brainiac. And he's at 11, already finished college with a degree in material science and engineering. And his grandmother says, you know, you could be a big help to us if you could start to create some of devices and vehicles that we are going to need if we're going to do these rescues. So that's how they get started. And I'll give you an example of one of his uh, vehicles. He invents something he calls the Helloboji. Stowe calls it the Swiss Army knife of terrain vehicles because it converts between a helicopter, a boat, and a Jeep as it's needed. In fact, on Saturday, we're going to have um, some sketches of it on a page, and it'll be kind of a coloring page for younger kids. He invents a lot of other cool stuff. He uses nanotechnology. He works on fuels that are um, more uh, favorable to the climate. And we talk a little bit about that, and that's that's who, but that's who he is. So they they prevent a, they present a very nice complement to each other in terms of their capabilities. Now Stowe is homeschooled, and her mother 
says to her, I think going on these missions uh, with rescue would be a great experience for you, but you're not to fall behind in your schoolwork. And if you're going to go, I require you to write logs about your adventures. So not about your adventures, but logs about uh, the things that you're learning on your adventures. So the story, the book, this first book is uh, written through Wheaton's eyes, but we get a sense of Stowe's voice and um, through her logs. And the logs are the place where a lot of the factual information is embedded. Now, the story itself um, uh, it starts with a forest ranger in Borneo, um, in the national park in Borneo, um, called the Gunan Palang National Park, which is a real park. He calls, um, he calls to the United States to speak to uh, the folks at rescue because they have found a mother orangutan that's been shot in the hand. And they, and they keep very close tabs on all the orangutans in their park. And they know that this, uh, um, <clears throat> that this orangutan, this female, has a baby. And the baby is missing. So they would like rescue. They know rescue's got some very unusual devices for finding uh, animals. And they would like rescue to come over and see if they can help locate this baby. So off they go in their mini space shuttle and they zoom over to Borneo and there they meet up with um, the forest stranger and with a young uh, with a with a young son of the forest ranger who's a couple years older than these kids. And as in any children's book, uh, there is a, a very uh, rational way to get the adults off to the perimeter, and these three uh, young people go off together for an adventure that has some high stakes, uh, some scary moments. They meet up with uh, a cousin of this young man, so it ends up being a little quartet, uh, and uh, they uh, they go on their mission to locate the baby orangutan. And along the way, they uh, learn a lot about the tropical rainforest. They see other animals that um, have their own appeal and challenges. And uh, the rest of it, you have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Which we will do. Ed, this uh, just sounds like a wonderful book. And uh, the series sounds great, too. And I know you're going to be doing some signings. You've been generous with your time today with us and doing a reading. We're looking forward to seeing you coming up here very soon on, on Saturday. But Eva Pell, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you on Saturday. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for your interest. Thanks to Dr. Eva Pell, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program, Breakfast at the Zoo, Look Who's New, September 14th, 2019. More details will be available on our website. Hey, one quick mention for everyone. My good friend and best-selling author, Mark Miller, who founded CareerPivot.com, well, Mark's new book, Repurpose Your Career to Help the Baby Boomer Generation Create Successful and Fulfilling Professional Lives, is available now for the Kindle. Mark's books, his workshops, his speaking appearances, all of his resources, including his podcasts, and Mark's stated strategy which is to work with those of us in the second half of our life who want to change. So check out Repurpose Your Career. It's available for Kindle on Amazon, and it's available right now, the paperback for those of us who still love the feel 
of a great paper book will be available September 16th on Amazon. So please check it out. You'll love it. Finally, thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And thanks to you, our wonderful Not All Better Show audience. Remember, talk about better. The Not All Better Show. Thanks, everybody.